In the uh, fourth grade, uh, I met Mrs. Turpening, who at fourth grade looked like to me Agatha Trunchbull from Matilda. Do you remember the principal from Matilda? Yeah, I guess glamour shots doesn't work for everybody. Um, but, that, but that's not true. She, she's a great gal. Later, I would do, uh, my brother and I would do work for her. Her husband was a pastor. But in the fourth grade, I went to a really small uh, Christian church and uh, Christian school. Went to a Christian church that was not small, but I went to a Christian school that was small, uh, actually in my backyard owned by the, the biggest Cincinnati uh, Christian radio station, uh, for whatever that's worth. There, there you go. But Mrs. Turpening would um, put this paddle uh, in her classroom and kind of hung it on this old, like, rusty nail that you needed probably a shot just to touch. And she called the paddle the bus stop, okay? And so the bus stop was, don't worry, I'm not going to ask for participation because that would be weird. The bus stop was uh, for, um, for folks that committed the most heinous crimes, you know, like stealing from your classmates, starting a fight on the playground, uh, yelling or saying bad words. You would succumb to the wrath of the bus stop. Now, as if that wasn't enough, any child, I, I'm just like, is this like abuse? I don't know. Uh, but, you know, parents let it happen, so whatever. Uh, so when you succumb to the bus stop, you had to actually write your name down. After you were paddled, right? So Mrs. Turpening would just go, you know, straight up, like golfing mode, and just crack you r- right over, right? Like Tiger Woods before the meltdown, or maybe during, I don't know. Um, and, and they would do this, I guess, as much as they wanted to. And, and I remember coming in uh, early for lunch. Yeah, right. yeah, I would always do that. But then also forgetting something in my mom's car and having to run down the hallway to grab a book or a homework assignment. And I would just hear this, like, I'm not going to do it, but I just hear this smack, smack, and some kid like with blood curling screams crying uh, that this, you know, not parent of theirs is uh, (laughs) inflicting harm on them. And so the bus stop kind of hung in the fourth grade classroom by the chalkboard as sort of a visual reminder that if you uh, do anything offensive, (laughs) uh, you will have to succumb to the bus stop. Now, Uh, I'll have you know that I did not suffer the wrath of the bus stop, but Mrs. Turpening did keep a ruler in her drawer uh, for minor offenses. So I would get my hands smacked like like really, really fast. It's amazing how quick her wrist was uh, at least once a week Um, because I get paid to talk and I got that from a young age. I I didn't really be quiet a lot. uh, uh, Teachers had to yell at me to be quiet. Uh, but, but there are different things in our lives, I think, that try to keep us uh, sort of in line. And fear and wrath and punishment is a great way to do that. <laughs> it's a great way to do that. It's kind of easy to do that. And last weekend, we kicked off a teaching series uh, called Live Free or Die. And so we're kind of we're walking through the book of Galatians. Six chapters, taking six weeks to sort of walk through the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, the, one of the larger themes is this idea of freedom, that the church uh, in Galatia is sort of imploding because there's a group of people called Judaizers that are teaching people that it's not good enough just to become a Christian, give your life to Christ, uh, express that publicly in baptism. You have to obey all 613 commandments of the Torah, the first five books uh, of your Old Testament. So, so, so Paul pens this letter uh, to the church in Galatia. You can go there today. It's, it's in modern Turkey. Happy to go with you if you cover my flight costs. I can show you around. 
uh, anything on your iPhone. You can pretend that you can know what you're doing and, and would, lo- would love to go there with you. Because, see, here's the deal with the church in Galatia. It wasn't necessarily their sin. This isn't like the book of Corinthians. And the book of Corinthians is crazy. That's like an HBO special. People were sleeping with other people. They were getting drunk at the communion table. No kidding. No kidding, right? To talk about a first-time guest experience, you see, you see people getting drunk on communion and wine. No, no, no. Galatians is the opposite. It wasn't their sin keeping them from the Lord. It was actually their religion and being good little Christian boys and good little Christian girls. And so last week, we threw out the idea of, like, what is freedom? Maybe freedom comes from more options. Like, if we just had more options, we would feel freer. Uh, I know that's not true, and if you're a parent with a teenager, you know that's not true. Case in point, take them shopping. There are 30 different pairs of jeans that they can buy, right? Options don't multiply our thinking power to, to make an informed decision quicker. It actually, through science and research, we know that it divides our brain. We're just like, I, I don't know, mom jeans. No, not mom jeans, right? Skinny jeans. Like, I, I can't wear skinny jeans for obvious reasons. <laughs> Thanks, for, Caleb, for laughing. <laughs> So then we asked, like, okay, maybe freedom doesn't come from options. Like, what about restrictions? What if, what if there were no restrictions where there's no such thing as, like, uh, there's no such thing as, like, um, counseling. There's no such thing as uh, conflict resolution because you can do whatever you want. You are always right. And some of you are like, that's my marriage. Oh, please talk to me after service if that's you, okay? We, we, we need to have some pastoral counseling. And so what we said in week one of Live Free or Die is this, that freedom, big idea week one, freedom comes from a mutually exclusive love relationship whereby both parties are willing to give up some of their freedom. And we talked about this is the way Jesus moves through the Old Testament and the New Testament, that he gives up heaven, he, he becomes the most humiliating uh, act for a God. He becomes a human. He's prone to disease. He's prone to sickness. God can have his bones broken. He can be hungry. He can, he can eat a bad meal and suffer the consequences. But he, he gave up some of his rights and died on a cross on our behalf and rose again three days later in the hopes that we would meet him at the cross, knowing that ultimate freedom doesn't come from restrictions, but actually liberating restrictions where we know that Jesus is for our good. And so we're willing to give up what we want in our life in order to follow him, uh, 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 Christian word for discipleship. And so in week two today, we're going to talk about freedom in our justification. It's a big Bible word, big theology word, which we're going to dive into today. And the big idea for today, friends, is this, that freedom doesn't come from telling people how to live, which is condemnation, but telling people how they are loved, which is justification. In other words, condemnation says, I'm going to tell you how to live, where justification says, I'm going to tell you how you are loved. Same coin, two different sides, two different kinds of responses that you get from people. And this is how sick and twisted it is uh, in the first century. In Galatians 2.4, Paul says this, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on freedom, right? Like there's religious people that have nothing better to do to go to a church 
to spy on people to see if they were living the right way, being good Christian girls, being good Christian boys. They're, they're sneaking into our life groups and our, and our Bible studies and our, and our staff meetings, and they're just sitting quietly and, and very reserved and pleasant, but waiting to see if we're actually, actually being good uh, at religion, meaning we're actually following all of the Old Testament rules. This is why a lot of religious people don't have a lot of friends, because uh, Paul says they are spying on our freedom that we have in Christ, Jesus, and they want to make us slaves. Wait a minute. I thought sin made you a slave. It does, but so does religion. So does morality. So does thinking you're better than somebody else because you've been a Christian your whole life or you give 90% of your income and live off of 10% or because you're at church every Sunday and you don't understand why a certain family member won't come. Yeah, yeah, sin does make us slaves. We'll talk about that because uh, Paul writes that in terms of like economic value that we're in debt to someone or something. But what also makes us slaves, which you may or may not hear about in the church a lot, is your goodness, Sure, you're a sin. your sin offends God. Everybody knows that. You don't have to be religious to know that. But so does your morality. Any, any hopes at trying to be good, <laughs> apart from a relationship with Jesus, is equally offensive. Our sin and our righteousness, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. They do us no good. They trick us into thinking that performance-based religion is what God actually is after, and so we stand condemned, we condemn other people, we spend our lives telling people how to live versus how they are loved. Um, a friend of mine, a mutual friend on uh, the internets, on Facebook, he's a little bit older than me, so he graduated uh, Ozark Christian College, where I went to school to study to be a pastor. Uh, he wrote a book called Messy Grace, and Caleb uh, Kaltenbach uh, grew up um, as, as an only child outside of or inside Kansas City, I believe, and uh, as a little boy, his parents sat him down and said, Caleb, we have some tough news uh, to give you. Um, your, your mother and I or your father and I are, are getting a divorce. And my, my parents are divorced, and, but, but I heard that in my 20s in college, so I can't imagine a little boy hearing that. And then here is the reason why. Your mother, <coughs> excuse me, your mother and I or your father and I are getting divorced because we're realizing uh, that we're gay. And we want to live as homosexuals, and you can't do that in a heterosexual relationship, so we're divorcing. So a little boy, not in middle school, finds out that mom and dad are gay and that they're getting divorced. Now, his father was uh, a little more introverted, a little more reserved, but his mother was very extroverted, very, very outgoing, <coughs> joined many political groups, and um, made it known that she was gay, and she did not appreciate certain groups of people, I'll give you one guess about who that is, uh, telling her how to live. And this is one part of Caleb's book, Messy Grace, which if you're a parent, uh, at all, you should read this book. If you're a grandparent, you need to read this book, especially in 2019. If you're a student, middle school, high school, or college, or you're getting your master's and whatever, I don't care if it's biophysics, you need to read this book. Because uh, in the beginning of the book, Caleb talks about how from that point on, he grew up going to gay bars with his mom. He went to gr drag queen shows with his mom. And the song, We Are Family, means something way different to him than it does us, okay? Is it me, or do you feel uncomfortable? Great, I'm going to keep going. And so, 
he, he also went to uh, gay pride parades, and he, re- he records his, uh, recounts his story in the book where he's walking with his mom and her, and her partner, Vera, uh, in the gay pride parade, and he looks over and sees a group of people with signs saying, you're going to hell, repent, God hates, and I can't even say this word because I would probably get fired, but you could probably fill in the blank. And I will keep this as PG as I can, but it's in the book. Uh, They're walking, and somebody uh, in this group decides that it would be a good idea to go to the bathroom on uh, someone that Caleb is walking with. And Caleb looks at his mom and says, Mom, why... Why are these people like this? And Caleb's mom says, well, they're, they're Christians, Caleb. They don't, they don't like people like us. Later on in the book, he goes to the hospital with his mom to visit one of her friends. Uh, and, and he, the friend, is, is a guy. He is in the, the final hours of fighting and wrestling with HIV AIDS. And he's shivering. He's got four or five blankets on him. And, and Caleb knows that the gentleman's son, or the, the gentleman's family, is sort of huddled over in the corner and Caleb talks to uh, his mom's friend, and, and I, I don't remember this if it happened, but I believe he holds his hand and he prays for him, and he leaves the hospital. And again, he asks his mom, Mom, why, are, why, why, why is his family like that? And she says, Caleb, they're Christians. They don't, they don't like people like us. You see, condemnation says, I'm going to tell you how to live <laughs> because I know how to live, and you, can't measure, you haven't measured up to me. But justification says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the same coin and flip it and tell you how you're loved. And through Caleb's journey of this book, at the end of the book, Caleb grows up, goes to Bible college, is disowned by his parents for a season because they think that's like the opposite of what they want their son to do, uh, becomes a pastor in Texas and then in California. And both of his parents, uh, by the end of the book, actually enter into a relationship with the Lord and come back to the Lord and have this vibrant, growing faith. But not because someone went to the bathroom on them and said, you're going to hell because of X, Y, and Z, but because Caleb faithfully loved his family and chose not to condemn, but to tell them how and why they are loved through the means that Paul's going to get at in just a moment called justification. Now, in the first century, there wasn't a bus stop. There wasn't a gay pride parade to march in, uh, but there were festivals, especially if you read the book of Romans and that weird book that we all avoid except for a few people called Revelation. But for the most part, these things were not part of the first century. But there was something in the first century that uh, sort of religious people war as a reminder, like, you're not good enough, and you can't measure up, and it's all about your performance. Tim Gunn uh, said this was fashion forward, so if you know he is, yeah, okay, a few people watch uh, runway shows. I do it because I'm married. Back off. Uh, (laughs) This is... uh, and I like Tim Gunn, so judge me. Uh, this is a prayer shawl, okay? And uh, Jewish men would wear this in the first century. Uh, often religious, or not, well, religious, but rabbis would wear this prayer shawl. And this was a reminder of how holy and other than uh, the, the rabbis were and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were against regular common people, okay? Now let me tell you what this means. This is a talit, but these little tassels here are called uh, seat seats. Can you say seat seats? All right, five people are awake. Awake. Can you say seat seats? Yeah, it's like Olive Garden. I don't know. I was thinking about food. Uh, and then at the end of this, there are eight. There are eight threads and then five knots. Well, the seat seats represented the number six hundred. So six hundred plus eight plus five equals six hundred thirteen. 
which is the exact amount of commandments in the Old Testament, the Torah, the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Aren't you so glad I'm religious? And this was a visual reminder of the fact that the Torah hung from their prayer shawl. Now, here in different, I think it's here, so I apologize if you grew up Jewish and you know this better than me, but I believe here and then at the, in the back of the prayer shawl is called, this is a, this is a fun word to say, it's called kanaf. Can you say kanaf? Yeah, it's the Hebrew word for corner, for wall, and also for wings. And so a religious person might wear this a lot to show just how important he is and how better he is at performing his or her religion than other people. Now, what's interesting about this prayer shawl is that in Malachi 4.2, the writer says, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, his kanaf, which is also corner, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. So when the Son of Man comes, or when the Son of God comes, the Messiah comes, there'll be something different about him and the way he does life and the way he addresses people than what you're, uh, you're used to as typical religious people who wear these prayer shawls reminding people how holy and how better they are than other Jews. Now, I, lo- I love Jesus because he's so sarcastic sometimes, but you got to really dig in. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says this. He's talking to the Pharisees who are praying. See, Jews would pray at, in the morning uh, high noon and then the evening. Those are typically the three times. They pray more than that. But in Matthew 6, 5, Jesus is addressing a Pharisee at the uh, busiest day, part of the day, when most people would be in the marketplace and going to synagogue to pray. And this is what Jesus says to the Pharisee. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Actually, he's talking to disciples, talking about uh, the hypocrites of the Pharisees. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues, and on street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. They wanted to show, that's what they're going to get. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, where's the joke, Ben? Here's the joke. Paul, or Jesus, is basically going to the Pharisees and saying, Dude, you're standing like in the parking lot of Rockingham Christian Church and praying like a Jewish man. Would, it would be uh, arms raised. He's like, why don't you just take your prayer shawl and just cover your face and continue praying? Because that's how embarrassing you look. Your, your shot at performance, your shot at being religious is offensive to your God. If you want to develop a prayer life, you don't have to flaunt that in front of other people. Go find a quiet place to pray. And what he's doing in this moment is he's making fun of religious people and warning religious people that only care about their performance. Why don't you just stand there and just cover your face? Because that's how embarrassing you are. I know that you're trying to show off. I know that you think you're better than me. I know that you prefer condemnation uh, over justification. There's another part in in the Gospels where where Jesus meets a woman with a a terrible, terrible medical condition. She's she's been bleeding for a very long time. She's been to every doctor. Uh, Nothing seems to work. And she sees Jesus walking through her town. And notice what Mark records. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Like, God allows us to touch him. Because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. 
Now, where in the world would this Jewish girl ever think or have a clue that touching Jesus' kanaf of his prayer shawl would actually provide her healing? Oh, because <laughs> little girls go to synagogue like little boys. Sometimes little boys turn out to be religious subtype Pharisees. She believed when the rabbi said in Malachi that when the son of righteousness, when the son of God comes, there's going to be something different about this person. There's going to be something even different about the kanaf of his prayer shawl. And this woman actually believed it. And maybe, maybe so, or maybe just she was just out of options. When you're out of options, you do crazy things like in the first century as a woman push men out of the way to get to Jesus. And notice what Jesus says to her, daughter, which is a statement of inclusion because she had been kicked. This is like having leprosy. You'd have to remove yourself from your community. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Okay, this is different. This is different than uh, any other religious teacher in the first century, and I would even argue today that somehow when this woman touches Jesus' prayer shawl, she's immediately healed. And there isn't any healing in her obeying rules and regulations and customs, which we talked about last week. There's something about the person of Jesus that not only brought her healing, but her faith brought her salvation. Not, not, not that she like squinted, you know, when people say you got to have more faith, like, oh, I'm trying to have more faith. No, no, no. The object of our faith saves us, which I'll probably say this every Sunday since I'm here. The object of our faith is Jesus. So there's something she knew about Jesus where she would kind of make a diving leap across the end zone to touch his garment. And, she, and Jesus looks at her and says, you know, don't you? You know who I am. Even before I go to the cross and raise from the dead, your, your faith has saved you. Go, go, go in peace. See, religion didn't do that for her. Religion doesn't do that for us. Knowing the Greek, knowing the Hebrew, giving 99% of your income, coming to church every time the doors are open, don't save you. Those are all good things that develop you, but they don't save you. One last thing Jesus says about his, the prayer shawl, he's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What is he talking about? See, a lot of people are like, I like Jesus. He's like a hippie. It's all about love. I love the New Testament. Well, Jesus wrote the whole book. I know it's a drag, isn't it? So Jesus actually existed in the Old Testament. All those things that you don't like, yep, that's Jesus. And Jesus is making a statement to the Pharisees and any, any religious person. He's like, look, I've not come here to say the Old Testament is irrelevant. No, I've not come here to abolish the law, but I've actually come to fulfill it. You see, you're not going to understand obedience. You're not going to understand the Old Testament until you have a relationship with me. Like every, like every, we should do a series on this sometime. Every one of the Ten Commandments points and is fulfilled and has its purpose and meaning in the, per, in the person of Jesus. He's like, I'm not saying the Old Testament is irrelevant. That's ridiculous. Like, I took, t I took time, right? Men and women wrote the Bible uh, over 1,500 years in several continents. No, I want some street cred for this. I, I, I know all 613 commandments. I'm just saying, if you only obey rules, you're not going to find life. You're just going to have a life that had a great religious performance. You just won't ever 
find meaning. To which Jesus says, um, why would you stress about obeying rules and following the Torah when the Torah is standing right in front of you? I am all 613 rules that you think you have to follow for God to love you. And what Jesus is saying in that moment, I think to us is, I'm going to live the perfect life on your behalf. I'm going to get crushed in front of my own mom, in front of my friends on a cross, and I'm going to rise three days later. And basically, what I'm going to say to you is this, that you can be religious all you want, Galatia. You can be religious all you want, RCC, but you will not find meaning in this life apart from a relationship with me. See, th these are just rules. This is just stuff on paper. This isn't real life. And Jesus says, look, I've not come to say the Old Testament's irrelevant. I've just come to say that if you only look at God in terms of the Old Testament and rules, it's like watching a show back in the 50s in black and white. But when you follow me, you're going to start seeing the scriptures, both old and new, in color. This is something that I want for you, not from you. And it's to this end, Paul writes, all that to say, right? Don't worry, that's not the introduction. I'm almost done. All that to say... <laughs> What Paul writes in Galatians 2, 17 through 21, here it is. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? You see, what he's trying to, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to switch here. But what Paul's saying is, if we Jews seek to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among sinners. Doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. For if I rebuild what is destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker, right? So Paul is really laying down the hammer saying, you Jews are no different than Gentiles. And a Gentile is basically, it's a generic word for literally in the Greek humanity, everybody else. And so Paul's laying, dropping the hammer saying, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it's not about your obedience. It's about Christ's obedience on your behalf, which is why he writes verse 19, which is, I think, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful sections of all of literature and sacred text. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Paul says, look, I grew up a Jew. A Pharisee of Pharisees, a Sadducee of Sadducees. We talked about this in week one. They were grown men coming to my Torah Bible studies, asking me questions, asking me perspectives, from my perspective. But I finally realized it's not in my obedience that God wants to have a relationship with me. It's in my willingness to come to him that he wants to have a relationship with me, to grow me and to develop me. So for, forget the Old Testament laws. I am waving the white flag. I know I'll never be good enough. I know I'll never be more enough, moral enough. And guys, listen, if you're new to the, like, he wrote like a third of the Bible. Like, he gets to write a good chunk of the Bible, and yet he's saying, I know I will never be perfect enough. I know there will never be an Olympic game where I nail my routine and I stick the landing and God's going to be like, oh, you're a good Christian boy. I know that my performance and being religious and being good and being moral will ever win God's favor. So he says this in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That's a lot of words. Let me talk about briefly what he's talking about. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I kind of like to think that this phrase of like Christ living in me is just another reminder that the work of the cross is enough. When I'm tempted to be good, when I'm tempted to be moral or ethical, I don't have to worry about, and I don't have to let anxiety go through the roof. I don't have to let depression set in. I don't have to be a control freak or a type A person. That the work of the cross was enough for me. So I'm letting that work grow in me and mature in me. The point of Christianity isn't to go to the cross and then go beyond it and learn something deeper, like, oh, let's read Revelation. No, it, it means to go deeper into the cross and its meaning and its beauty. And as you grow older and listen to your false story and your childhood and all those things that have made you the way you are, the gospel will become more and more beautiful to you. You don't get that by being good. You get that by being the beloved son and daughter of God. To which Paul says, when this happens, you are justified. Which leads us to the final question. How are we actually free in our justification? Paul talks about sin in two different ways. I'll talk about one of them right now. Paul talks about sin in terms of economics, right? So when you sin, you are in debt to someone or to something. It's, it's It's like money, right? When you swipe the visa card, you're now in debt right, to the lender. You owe Visa or Sally Mae, everyone's favorite friend, until you pay off your student loans, right, which are from the devil, right? You're, 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 we, all, we, get that, we get that concept, right? We get that concept. And so what justification says is, picture this, you get arrested, this is terrible, you go home from church and you get arrested and you say, your heavenly father, the judge of the world wants to see you. You appear in his courts and he says, here are all of the good attempts that you tried to be religious and all of the sinful attempts that you did in your life. All the evidence is before you. How do you plea? And you look at middle school years like, man, that stack is high. And you look at your freshman year of college, right? And the year before you get married, you're like, oh man, I am, I'm, I'm guilty. And you freak out because you know that the sentence is life without the possibility of parole. And what the judge says is, I will render the verdict according to your plea. You are guilty. See, God's not a chump. He's not saying like, oh, you could just do whatever. I'll forgive you. Whatever. No, no, no. God says we are sinners. But the beauty of justification comes not in the verdict, but in the sentencing hearing. In the sentencing hearing, the judge says, you are guilty. Your sentence is life without the possibility of parole. But my son has served your sentence on your behalf. You have been found guilty, but you have also been found justified because Jesus served your sentence on your behalf. You're free to go. 
This is what it means to be justified. This is what it means to be told not how to live, but how deeply and profoundly you are loved. This is justification. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, this beautiful concept in your word called justification. Uh, We thank you that you're not a chump. Because honestly, like if we're being real as humans, we don't want to come to terms with the fact that we were molested as a kid. We don't want to come to terms with the fact that we were part of the reason why we were divorced. We don't want to come to terms with the fact that we're distant from loved ones and family members. But you call things as they are because you call us into the reality of your love. And even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our goodness, you say like, like we are found guilty. But then there's this beautiful judiciary term that we've never heard of. While we're guilty, we're also justified. Not because of our sin, not because of our goodness, but because your son served a life sentence without the possibility of parole on our behalf. And we're free to walk. We don't find that in religion. We only find that in a freedom that comes from a relationship with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.